Section 12 of The Natural History, Volume 7. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Keith G. Saturn. The Natural History, Volume 7, by Pliny the Elder. Translated by John Bostock and Henry Thomas Riley. Section 4, Book 33, Chapters 13 to 21. Chapter 13. Coins of Gold. At what periods copper, gold, and silver were first impressed? How copper was used before gold and silver were coined? What was the largest sum of money possessed by anyone at the time of our first census? How often and at what periods the value of copper and coined money has been changed? The next crime committed against the welfare of mankind was on the part of him who was the first to coin a denarius of gold, a crime the author of which is equally unknown. The Roman people made no use of impressed silver even before the period of the defeat of King Pyrrhus. The as of copper weighed exactly one libra, and hence it is that we still use the terms libella and dupondius. Hence it is, too, that fines and penalties are inflicted under the name of asgrave, and the words still used in keeping accounts are expensa, impendia, and dependere. Hence, too, the word stipendium, meaning the pay of soldiers, which is nothing more than stipus pondera, and from the same source of those words, dispensus tores and libipendris. It is also from this circumstance that in sales of slaves at the present day even, the formality of using the balance is introduced. King Servius was the first to make an impress upon copper. Before his time, according to Timaeus, at Rome the raw metal was only used. The form of sheep was the first figure impressed upon money, and to this fact it owes its name, pecunia, the highest figure at which one man's property was assessed in the reign of the king was 120,000 asses, and consequently that amount of property was considered the standard of the first class. Silver was not impressed with a mark until the year of the city 485, the year of the consulship of Q. Ogolnius and C. Fabius, five years before the First Punic War, at which time it was ordained that the value of the denarius should be ten libre of copper, that of the quinarius five librae, and the sestercius two librae and a half. The weight, however, of the libra of copper was diminished during the First Punic War, the Republic not having means to meet its expenditure, in consequence of which an ordinance was made that as should in the future be struck of two ounces of weight. By this contrivance, a saving of five-sixths was effected and the public debt was liquidated. The impression upon the copper coins was a two-faced janus on one side and the beak of a ship of war on the other. The triens, however, and the quadrants bore the impression of a ship. The quadrants, too, had, previously to this, been called terunxius, as being three uncii in weight. At a later period, again, when Hannibal was pressing hard upon Rome, in the dictatorship of Q. Fabius Maximus, asses of one weight were struck, and it was ordained that the value of the denarius should be sixteen asses, that of the quinarius eight asses, 
and the Cistercius four asses, by which last reduction of the weight of the ass the Republic made a clear gain of one half. Still, however, far as the pay of the soldiers was concerned, one denarius has always been given for every ten asses. The impression upon the coins of silver were two horse and four horse chariots, and hence it is that they received the names of bigati and quadrigati. Shortly after, in accordance with the laws of Papirius, asses were coined weighing half an ounce only. Livius Druscus, when tribune of the people, alloyed the silver with one-eighth part of copper. The coin that is known at the present day as the Toriatus was first struck in accordance with the Clodian law, before which period a coin of this name was imported from but was only looked upon as an article of merchandise. The impression upon it is a figure of victory, and hence its name. The first golden coin was struck 62 years after that of silver, the scruple of gold being valued at 20 sesterces, a computation which gave, according to the value of the sesterce then in use, 900 sesterces to each libra in gold. In later times, again, an ordinance was made that the denarii of gold should be struck at the rate of 40 denarii to each libra of gold, after which period the emperors gradually curtailed the weight of the golden denarius until, at last, in the reign of Nero, it was coined at the rate of 45 to the libra. Chapter 14. Considerations on Man's Cupidity for Gold But the invention of money opened a new field to human avarice. By giving rise to usury and the practice of lending money at interest, while the owner passes a life of idleness. And it was with no slow advances that not mere avarice only, but a perfect hunger for gold became inflamed with a sort of rage for acquiring, to such a degree, in fact, that Septimilius, the familiar friend of Caius Grecus, not only cut off his head upon which a price had been set of its weight in gold, but before bringing it to Optimus, poured molten lead into the mouth, and so not only was guilty of the crime of parricide, but added to his criminality by cheating the state. Nor was it now any individual citizen, but the universal Roman name that had been rendered infamous by avarice when King Mithridates caused molten gold to be poured into the mouth of Achilles, the Roman general whom he had taken prisoner. Such were the results of cupidity. One cannot but feel ashamed on looking on those newfangled names which are invented every now and then from the Greek language by which to designate vessels of silver, filigreed, or inlaid with gold, and the various other practices by which such articles of luxury, when not only gilded, are made to sell at a higher price than they would have done if made of solid gold, and this too when we know that Spartacus forbade any one of his followers to introduce either gold or silver into the camp. So much more noblest of mind was there in those days, even in our runaway slaves. The orator Masala has informed us that Antonius the Triumphor made use of golden vessels when satisfying the most humiliating wants of nature, a piece of criminality that would have reflected disgrace upon Cleopatra even. 
Till then, the most consummate instances of similar licentiousness had been found among strangers only, that of King Philip, namely, who was in the habit of sleeping with a golden goblet placed beneath his pillows, and that of Hagnon of Teos, a commander under Alexander the Great, who was used to fastening the soles of his sandals with nails of gold. It was reserved for Antonius to be the only one thus to impart a certain utility to gold, by putting an insult upon nature. Oh, how righteously would he himself have been proscribed! But then the proscription should have been made by Spartacus. Chapter 15 The Persons Who Have Possessed the Greatest Quantity of Gold and Silver For my own part, I am much surprised that the Roman people have always imposed upon conquered nations a tribute in silver and not in gold. Carthage, for instance, from which upon its conquest under Hannibal, a ransom was extracted in the shape of a yearly payment for fifty years of eight hundred thousand pounds weight of silver, but no gold. And yet it does not appear that this could have arisen from there being so little gold then in use throughout the world. Midas and Croesus, before this, had possessed gold to an endless amount. Cyrus, already, in his conquest of Asia, had found a booty consisting of 24,000 pounds weight in gold, in addition to the vessels and other articles of wrought gold, as well as leaves of trees, a plane tree, and a vine, all made of that metal. It was thought through this conquest, too, that he carried off 500,000 talents of silver, as well as the vase of Samarinus, the weight of which alone amounted to 15 talents, the Egyptian talent being equal, according to Varro, to 80 of our pounds. Before this time, too, Salasus, the descendant of Aedes, had reigned in Colchis, who, on finding a tract of virgin earth in the country of Suani, extracted from it a large amount of gold and silver. It is said, and whose kingdom besides had been famed for the possession of the golden fleece. The golden arches, too, of his palace, we find spoken of, the silver supports and columns and pilasters, all of which he had come into possession of on the conquest of Sesostris, king of Egypt, a monarch so haughty that every year it is said it was his practice to select one of his vassal kings by lot and yoking him to his car celebrate his triumph afresh. Chapter 16 At what period silver first made its appearance upon the area and upon the stage? We too have done things that posterity might probably look upon as fabulous. Caesar, who was afterwards a dictator, but at that time, Edile, was the first person on the occasion of the funeral games in honor of his father to employ all the apparatus of the arena in silver. And it was on the same occasion that, for the first time, criminals encountered wild beasts with implements of silver, a practice imitated at the present day in our municipal towns even. At the games celebrated by C. Antonius, the stage was made of silver, and the same was the case at those celebrated by L. Murena. The emperor Cassius had scaffolding introduced into the circus, upon which there was 124,000 pounds weight of silver. His successor, Claudius, on the occasion of his triumph over Britain, 
announced by the inscriptions that among the coronets of gold there was one weighing 7,000 pounds weight, contributed by nearer Spain, and another 9,000 pounds presented by Gallia Comata. Nero, who succeeded him, covered the theater of Pompeius with gold for one day, the occasion on which he displayed it to Tiridates, king of Armenia. And yet how small was this theater in comparison with the golden palace of his with which he environed our city. Chapter 17. At what periods there was the greatest quantity of gold and silver in the treasury of the Roman people. In the consulship of Sextus Julius and Lucius Aurelius, seven years before the commencement of the Third Punic War, there was a treasury of the Roman people 17,410 pounds weight of uncoined gold, 22,070 pounds weight of silver, and in specie 6,135,400 Sesterces. In the consulship of Sextus Julius and Lucius Marcius, that is to say, at the commencement of the Social War, there was in the public treasury 1,620,831 pounds weight in gold. Caius Caesar, at his first entry into Rome during the Civil War which bears his name, withdrew from the treasury 15,000 pounds weight in gold ingots, 30,000 pounds weight in uncoined silver, and in specie, 300,000 sesterces. Indeed, at no period was the Republic more wealthy. Emilius Paulus, too, after the defeat of King Perseus, paid into the public treasury from the spoil obtained from Macedonia 300 millions of sesterces, and from this period the Roman people ceased to pay tribute. Chapter 18. At what period ceilings were first gilded? The ceilings which, at the present day, in private houses even, we see covered with gold, were first gilded in the capital after the destruction of Carthage and during the censorship of Lucius Mummius. From the ceilings, this luxuriousness has been since transferred to the arched roofs of buildings, and the party walls even, which at the present day are gilded like so many articles of plate, very different from the times when Catullus was far from being unanimously approved for having gilded the brazen tiles of the capital. Chapter 19. For what reasons the highest value is set upon gold? We have already stated in the seventh book who were the first discoverers of gold, as well as nearly all the other metals. The highest rank has been accorded to this substance, not, in my opinion, for its color, which in silver is clearer and more like the light of day, for which reason silver is preferred for our military ensigns, its brightness being seen at a greater distance, and those persons are manifestly in error who think that it is the resemblance of its color to the stars that is so prized in gold, seeing that various gems and other things of the same tint are not in such particular request, nor yet is it for its weight or malleability that gold has been preferred to other metals, it being inferior in both these respects to lead. 
But it is because gold is the only substance in nature that suffers no loss from the action of fire and passes unscathed through conflagrations and the flames of the funeral pile. Nay, even more than this, it is oftener gold is subjected to the action of fire, the more refined in quality it becomes. Indeed, fire is one test of its goodness, as, when submitted to intense heat, gold ought to assume a similar color, and turn red and igneous in appearance, a mode of testing which is known as abrusa. The first great proof, however, of the goodness of gold is its melting with the greatest difficulty, in addition to which it is a fact truly marvelous that through proof against the most intense fire, if made with wood charcoal, it will melt with the greatest readiness upon a fire made with chaff, and that, for the purpose of purifying it, it is used with lead. There is another reason, too, which still more tends to enhance its value, the fact that it wears the least of all metals by continual use, whereas silver, copper, and lead lines may be traced, and the hands become soiled with the substance that comes off them. Nor is there any material more malleable than this, none that admits of more extended division, seeing that a single ounce of it admits being beaten out into several hundred fifty leaves or more, four fingers in length, by the same in breadth. The thickest kind of gold leaf is known as leaf of Pernesti. It is still retaining that name from the excellence of gilding upon the statue of fortune there. The next in thickness is known as the Castorian leaf. In Spain, small pieces of gold are known by the name of stridges. A thing that is not the case with any other metal, gold is found pure in masses or in the form of dust, and whereas all other metals, when found in the ore, require to be brought to perfection by the aid of fire, this gold that I am speaking of is gold the moment it is found, and has all its component parts already in a state of perfection. This, however, is only such gold as is found in the native state, the other kinds that we shall have to speak of being refined by art, and then, more than anything else, gold is subject to no rust, no verdigris, no emanation whatever from it, either to alter its quality or to lessen its weight. In addition to this, gold steadily resists the corrosive action of salt and vinegar, things which obtain mastery over all other substances. It admits, too, beyond all other metals, of being spun out and woven like wool. Varius tells us that Tarquinus Priscius celebrated a triumph clad in a tunic of gold, and I myself have seen Agrippina, the wife of the Emperor Claudius, on the occasion of a naval combat which he exhibited, seated by him, attired in a military scarf made entirely of woven gold without any other material. For this long past, gold has been interwoven in the italic textures an invention of the king of Asia. Chapter 20. The Method of Gilding On marble and other substances which do not admit to being brought to white heat, gilt is laid with glare of egg, and on wood 
by the aid of glutinous composition known as leucopharin. What this last is and how it is prepared, we shall state in the appropriate section. The most convenient method for gilding copper would be to employ quicksilver, or at all events, hydrogyros. But with reference to these substances, we shall have occasion to say, when describing the nature of them, methods of adulteration have been devised. To effect this mode of gilding, the copper is first well hammered, after which it is subjected to the action of fire and then cooled with a mixture of salt, vinegar, and alum. It is then cleansed of all extraneous substances, it being known by its brightness when it has been sufficiently purified. This done, it is again heated by fire, in order to enable it, when thus prepared with the aid of an amalgam of pumice, alum, and quicksilver, to receive the gold leaf when applied. Alum has the same property of purifying copper that we have already mentioned as belonging to lead with reference to gold. Chapter 21 4. How Gold is Found Gold is found in our own part of the world, not to mention the gold extracted from the earth in India by the ants and in Scythia by the griffins. Among us it is procured in three different ways, the first of which is in the shape of dust, found in running streams. The tegus in Spain, for instance, the padus in Italy, the hebris in Thracia, the pactolus in Asia, and the Ganges in India. Indeed, there is no gold found in more perfect state than this, thoroughly polished by the continual action of the current. A second mode of obtaining gold is by sinking shafts or seeking it through the debris of mountains, both of which methods it would be well to describe. The persons in search of gold in the first place remove the sigatillum such being the name of the earth which gives indication of the presence of gold. This done, a bed is made, the sand of which is washed, and according to the residue found after washing, a conjecture is formed as to the richness of the vein. Sometimes, indeed, gold is found at once in the surface earth, a success, however, but rarely experienced. Recently, for instance, in the reign of Nero, a vein was discovered in Dalmatia, which yielded daily as much as 50 pounds weight of gold. The gold that is thus found in the surface crust is known as tellutium. Cases where there is auriferous earth beneath. The mountains of Spain, in other respects arid and sterile, and productive of nothing whatever, are thus constrained by man to be fertile in supplying him with this precious commodity. The gold that is extracted from the shafts is known by some persons as canalicium and by others as canaliance. It is found adhering to the gritty crust of marble and altogether different from the form in which it sparkles in the sapphires of the east and in the stone of the bay, and other gems. It is seen interlaced with the molecules of the marble. The channels of these veins are found running in various directions along the sides of the shafts, and hence the name of the gold they yield is canalcium. In these shafts, too, 
the superincumbent earth is kept from falling in by means of wooden pillars. The substance that is extracted is first broken up and then washed, after which it is subjected to the action of fire and ground to a fine powder. This powder is known as apetoscutes, while the silver, which becomes disengaged in the furnace, has the name of sudor given to it. The impurities that escape by the chimney, as in the case of all other metals, are known by the name of scoria. In the case of gold, the scoria is broken up a second time and melted over again. The crucibles used for this purpose are made of tesconium, a white earth similar to potter's clay in appearance, there being no other substance capable of withstanding the strong current of air, the action of the fire, and the intense heat of the melted metal. The third method of obtaining gold surpasses the labors of the giants even. By the aid of galleries driven to a long distance, the mountains are excavated by the light of torches, the duration of which forms the set times for work, the workmen never seeing the light of day for many months together. These mines are known as arugiers, and not unfrequently clefts are formed on a sudden. The earth sinks in, and the workmen are crushed beneath, so that it would really appear less rash to go in search of pearls and purples at the bottom of the sea. So much more dangerous to ourselves have we made the earth than the water. Hence it is that in this kind of mining, arches are left at frequent intervals for the purpose of supporting the weight of the mountain above. In mining either by shaft or by gallery, barriers of silex are met with which have been driven asunder by the aid of fire and vinegar, or more frequently, as this method fills the galleries with suffocating vapors and smoke, to be broken to pieces with bruising. Machines shod with pieces of iron weighing 150 pounds, which done, the fragments are carried out on the workmen's shoulders night and day, each man passing them to his neighbor in the dark, it being only those at the pit's mouth that ever see the light. In cases where the bed of silex appears too thick to admit of being penetrated, the miner traces along the sides of it, and so turns it, and yet, after all, the labor entailed by the silex is looked upon as comparatively easy. There being an earth, a kind of potter's clay mixed with gravel, Gengadia by name, which is almost impossible to overcome. This earth has to be attacked with iron wedges and hammers, like those previously mentioned, and it is generally considered that there is nothing more stubborn in existence, except, indeed, the greed for gold, which is the most stubborn of all things. When these operations are all completed, beginning at the last, they cut away the wooden pillars at the point where they support the roof. The coming downfall gives warning, which is instantly perceived by the sentinel, and by him only, who is set to watch upon the peak of the same mountain. By voice as well as by signals, he orders the workmen to be immediately summoned from their labors, and at the same moment takes to flight himself. The mountain, rent to pieces, is cleft asunder, hurling its debris to a distance with a crash which it is impossible for the human imagination to conceive, and from the mist of the cloud of dust, of a density quite incredible, 
the victorious miners gaze upon this downfall of nature. Nor yet even then are they sure of gold, nor indeed were they by any means certain that there was any to be found when they first began to excavate. It being quite sufficient, as an inducement to undergo such perils and to incur such vast expense, to entertain the hope that they shall obtain what they so eagerly desire. Another label, too, quite equal to this, and one which entails even greater expense, is that of bringing rivers from the more elevated mountain heights a distance in many instances of 100 miles, perhaps, for the purpose of washing this debris. The channels thus formed are called corrigai, from our word corrivatio. I suppose, even when these are once made, they entail a thousand fresh labors. The fall, for instance, must be steep, that the water may be precipitated, so to say, rather than flow. And it is in this manner that it is brought from the most elevated points. Then, too, valleys and crevasses have been united by the aid of aqueducts, and in another place, impassable rocks have to be hewn away, and forced to make room for hollowed troughs of wood, the person hewing them hanging suspended all the time with ropes, so that to a spectator who views the operations from a distance, the workmen have the appearance not so much of wild beasts as of birds upon the wing. Hanging thus suspended in most instances, they take the levels and trace with lines the course the water is to take, and thus, where there is no room even for a man to plant a footstep, are rivers traced out by the hand of man. The water, too, is considered in an unfit state for washing, if the current of the river carries any mud along with it. The kind of earth that yields this mud is known as urium, and hence it is that in tracing out these channels they carry the water over beds of silex or pebbles and carefully avoid this urium. When they have reached the head of the fall, the very brow of the mountain, reservoirs are hollowed out a couple hundred feet in length and breadth, and some ten feet in depth. In these reservoirs, there are generally five sluices left, about three feet square, so that, the moment the reservoir is filled, the floodgates are struck away, and the torrent bursts forth with such a degree of violence as to roll onward any fragments of rock which may obstruct its passage. When they have reached the level ground, too, there is still another labor that awaits them. Trenches, known as agoga, have to be dug for the passage of the water, and these, at regular intervals, have a layer of ulex placed at the bottom. This ulex is a plant like rosemary in appearance, rough and prickly, and well adapted for arresting any pieces of gold that might be carried along. The sides, too, are closed with planks and are supported by arches when carried over steep and precipitous spots. The earth, carried onward in the stream, arrives at the sea at last, and thus the shattered mountain, washed away, causes which have greatly tended to extend the shores of Spain by these encroachments upon the deep. It is also by the agency of canals of this description that the material excavated 
at the cost of such immense labor by the processes previously described is washed and carried away, for otherwise the shafts would soon be choked up by it. The gold found by excavating with galleries does not require to be melted, but is pure gold at once. In these excavations, it is found in lumps, as also in the shafts which are sunk, sometimes exceeding 10 pounds even. The names given to these lumps are palagai and palacunye. While the gold found in small grains is known as balus, the ulex that is used for the above purpose is dried and burnt, after which the ashes are washed upon a bed of grassy turf in order that the gold may be deposited thereupon. Asturia, Galencia, and Lusitania furnish in this manner yearly, according to some authorities, 20,000 pounds weight of gold, the produce of Asturia forming the major part. Indeed, there is no part of the world that for centuries has maintained such a continuous fertility in gold. I have already mentioned that by an ancient decree of the Senate, the soil of Italy has been protected from these researches, otherwise there would be no land more fertile in metals. There is extant also a censorial law relative to the gold mines of Victimulae in the territory of Vercellae, by which the farmers of the revenue were forbidden to employ more than 5,000 men at the works. End of section 12. Recording by Keith G. Saturn, Rochester, New York, U.S.